Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. This is from Genesis 9, verses 1 through 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Thank you, Tiffany. I'm just gonna move some things out of the way real quick using those and not going to be using this. I'm just going to put it right here. Does that work? It's not in anybody's way. It's right in there. Perfect. All right. Good. Good morning. I'm Darden Kaler. I'm one of the pastors here and you have to forgive the little uh, turtleneck type thing that sticks up. It's my mask. That I hate carrying them around my ears and stuff because they pull on my ear. This is just much more comfortable for me. But anyway, uh, as, as Tiffany read for us this morning, we're going to be studying or looking at... Uh, God's covenants. We've been in a series in which we've been doing that. Today, specifically, we're going to be looking at what's called the Noahic covenant. Covenant with Noah. God makes covenant with Noah. And it's one that you're probably very, very familiar with, right? My hope today is that uh, perhaps what we'll do, despite our familiarity with the passage, is that we'll have a, a bit of a deeper understanding 
for what God is saying, for who he, who he claims to be, what he says about who we are and our relationship with him and about the promises that he makes to us, and a better understanding about what God teaches us to do, how we're called to respond to who he is and who we are in this world around us, right? Now, it's not going to be an easy task. It's not going to be an easy task at all for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that this is a really this is a really vast passage. It, it doesn't seem that long. It's only 17 verses, and, and so by that standard, it's not really that big. But the fact is, is that there's so much buried underneath the surface of what's going on in this passage that it's easy to sort of glance over it and miss all that God has in store for us here. The other reason that it's, it's not going to be an easy task to sort of guide our way through this is that we are so familiar with the story of Noah. It is by far one of the most popular stories in the entire Bible. Back in the 80s when my, when my uh, 80s, <laughs> back in the 90s when my first son was born, you know, Noah baby uh, nursery decorations were all the rage. I don't know if they still are. I'm well past that point in my life now. But, but they were all the rage. And we had... We had Noah's Ark decorations everywhere. It looked, like, it looked like somebody had come and dropped a Noah's Ark party on our son's nursery. And, and it was sort of overwhelming. And, and that's kind of why we're familiar with it. It's just one of those stories. One of those stories that even non-believers listen to and they're like, that's just amazing. And it's got a great ending. You know, the, the, the rainbow in the sky and the promise that it makes. It's such a great story. It's easy to look at the story that we're so familiar with and just sort of glance over it and go, yeah, 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 I get it. God makes a promise he's never going to flood the world again. Okay, I wasn't tremendously worried about that anyway, but here we are. God makes a promise, so it must be great. It's kind of the way it is with stories that we're familiar with, right? For example, when I was young, uh, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And back in the 70s and 80s, believe it or not, for all you youngsters, there were only three television stations that you could really watch, right? Uh, cable had not spread across the United States the way it is now. In fact, for a good portion of the first 15 years of my life, I didn't, I didn't know what cable was. I'd never heard of it. I didn't know there was a way of watching TV where you got more than three channels. And so during that time, one of the things that would happen every Easter is that ABC, I believe it was ABC, at least it was in our area, ABC would broadcast um, the epic movie from 1956, The Ten Commandments. Anybody ever seen The Ten Commandments? It's, it's an epic movie. It stars um, Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner, yeah. Uh, and Cecil, Cecil B. DeMille had, was, the, was the director of it. Great director, interesting guy. Um, the, story was, the story was just so, so well done. It was three hours and 40 minutes of Technicolor brilliance. Remember Technicolor? That's when they, they came in and they colored all the movies after they, they actually filmed it. So it was done in black and white, and then they put color over the top of it so that you get this idea of color. It, it, was, it was just amazing, in, in part for me because... It brought to life so many of those stories that I heard from the Old Testament, right? The Exodus, Noah's Ark, it just, it brought it to vivid life. And like, for a kid, you're watching that and you're going, this is amazing. I, 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 can, I can see what God did. I don't have to just read it. I can see it. And, and it's, it just was amazing to me. It was just one of the most amazing things ever. And back when I was a kid, I really... Couldn't wait to see it every year. 
It was one of my favorite things. One of my favorite things about Easter. But then, as happens, you get older, your tastes change and you change, right? And though I still believed in the historicity, I still believed in the Bible, I was, I don't know, the story sort of felt kind of root, right? It just was sort of, yeah, I've heard it. Yeah, okay, yay God, it's amazing. Water parted, people crossed the, it was great. It was great. But like all stories that we hear time and time again, it just kind of became mundane. It's just what happens over time. The world has a way of wearing us down and making the things that once felt amazing just seem kind of It happens to all of us, right? I'm sure if you've been raised in the church, it's one of those things where you hear so many different stories, and and those stories that you've heard time and time again, you hear them, and all of a sudden, you just kind of get that feeling about it, like, oh, yeah, I've heard this before. I'm going to skip ahead, especially if you're doing yearly Bible readings or things like that. I've heard this. I know this part. I don't need to read it again. But when we do that, we miss things. When When we do that, say, with the story of Noah, what happens is, is that we miss so many of the amazing things that are happening there in the story. We miss what it has to teach us about God, about the splendor of his purpose, about the magnificence of his grace. We miss what it has to teach us about God's goodness and his provision for his people. And consequently, when we miss those things, what what ultimately happens is we lose out on the joy and the hope and the peace that comes from, from God making these amazing promises in our lives and making these amazing promises to his people and doing these amazing things for us. We miss those things. And it's a shame because ultimately we are called to be a people of hope. We're called to be a people of hope because our God is a faithful God. We're called to be a people who trusts in the promises that he's made and believe him and in him in what he can do and has done. Though I admit, that's not always easy. It's not an easy thing in this world to to be hopeful, to be joyful, to be at peace. After all, let's face it, 2020 was a bit of a hard year. (laughs) It was a bit of a hard year. That's probably the understatement of 2021, that 2020 was a hard year. It was difficult for all of us. I don't know anyone that would argue otherwise. There were so many crazy things going on, so many just... And we had to watch it all on TV and on social media, and we had to see it all the time. You couldn't get away from it. You couldn't escape. It made it even harder. No wonder we felt irritated and isolated and frustrated and depressed. It was understandably difficult for any of us to find any level of joy in anything that was happening because so much bad was going on around us. And yet despite that, we're still called to be a people of hope. After all, we're not called to be a people of hopelessness. We're not called to be a people of skepticism or apathy or outrage or despair. We're not called to be people who just go, oh, it's all coming to an end, because it isn't. Our God is faithful. He calls us to hope in him. We're called to be a people of hope. 
We're called to be a people who believe in the God who keeps his promises. We're called to be in a people who believe in the God that is not surprised by anything that happens down here. You cannot catch God off guard. Anything we do, he knows about before we do it. 1966, Margaret Clarkson wrote this wonderful hymn uh, that expresses this truth. And she writes these words. She writes, Amid the fears that oppress our day, across the clouds that obscure our way, one golden truth sheds its shining ray, our God is sovereign still. Though wars may rise and kingdoms fall, though ills may threaten and fears enthrall, our God still lives and he hears our call, our God is sovereign still. His holy purpose unchanging stands, the stars still turn at their Lord's commands. He holds the world in his mighty hands. Our God is sovereign still. No matter what is happening around us at any given time, our God is sovereign still. That's what she's saying. That's what God's word teaches us. Our God is sovereign still. He's not caught off guards by riots or politics or pandemics or any other thing that happens. He's not. Because he's sovereign, he knows what's going to happen. Because he's almighty, nothing is out of his control. Because he's faithful, nothing will thwart his promises for us. And his purposes for all mankind will remain. When we look at verse 1, what we see in this passage is God blessing Noah and his sons. And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This probably sounds familiar if you've read any of the first half of Genesis, right? We've heard this before, and we hear it again in this same chapter. Verse 7, he says basically the same thing. It's often referred to as the creation or the cultural mandate, God's creation or cultural mandate. It was originally given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1, and along with the command not to eat from the, uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that stood in the center of the garden, with, uh, along with that command... God blesses them and says the same thing. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule over it. And it just what God is saying here is, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. Be who I've created you to be. Having been created in God's image, God calls all image bearers to bear his image, to do as he does. By imitating him in his care for creation and by imitating him in his management of creation. By doing what he has done for us. Though this mandate was made tremendously harder by the fall, tremendously harder by the fall, God didn't leave his people to suffer in in their sin without any hope. Instead, what he does is he he promises a believer, right? In in chapter 3 of Genesis, right at the very beginning, God promises a believer. You remember that? 3.15, um, God's talking to the serpent. He's speaking to the serpent after Adam and Eve have disobeyed him. He's speaking to the serpent, and he says to the serpent, he, meaning the woman's offspring, ultimately Christ, he will crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The Redeemer is coming. Then just six chapters later, he again reiterates his purpose of mankind. The same purpose that he gave before the fall, he reiterates after the fall, after the flood. And not just to Noah in today's passage, 
but in time and time again, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to Solomon. He's commanding them each and every time to replenish the earth and to subdue it, to rule over it gently, not with an iron fist, but the way God rules over his people, with love and kindness and compassion and mercy. And even during the exile, God commands his people in Jeremiah 29 to have children to plant vineyards, to pray for the peace of the cities of your enemies. Can you imagine that? I don't know who you think your enemies are, but I'm sure we all have them. And what God says is pray for their peace. Pray that they too will live in peace. Pray for the peace of the cities of your enemies. And finally, the ultimate reiteration of this cultural mandate comes in Matthew 28 where Jesus gives the great commission to his disciples saying, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And know I will be with you till the end of time. The point is, is that the creation mandate is, is ongoing. It's ongoing. It even stands for us. We have the same mandate on our lives. It it, it didn't stop with the fall. It didn't conclude with the flood. It didn't even end with the death of Jesus. Because when he was raised, he says it again in, in, in different words. Go. Do. Be. Demonstrate my grace and my mercy and my peace and my hope and my love to those that you come into contact with. Show them who your God is and tell them about what I've done. God's purpose for his people, to care for his creation, to do those things that he does, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to gently subdue it, have never, ever changed. They stand firm for us today. That's how God's purposes work. They they don't change. For example, shortly, shortly after we moved to St. Louis, St. Charles, uh, back in 2007 to plant a church. Um, who, who remembers the big thing that happened in 2008 and 9? The, the housing bubble? Anybody heard of the housing bubble falling apart? Yeah. Um, the housing bubble popped, right? And uh, fortunately, we bought our house before, which, or unfortunately, we bought our house before. I'm not sure how it works. But um, what happened was is that suddenly, uh, uh, the fastest-growing county in Missouri just sort of fell victim to a stagnant economy. It was just flat. It, I, I don't know if you, I don't know how much you got around at that time, but, but down on 94 and uh, 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 Mid-Rivers Mall Drive, there were apartments that had been started. Six, seven-story apartments, maybe four or five buildings, and they, and they were empty. They, no doors, no windows. They just remained empty for 10 years because... The bubble burst, and, and nobody could pay to, to finish them. And I, and I sat there thinking, wow, if I, if I just had $10 million, I'd buy those apartments, and, and, and I'd, I'd have a really nice piece of property. But nobody had the money, and everything sort of fell apart. At one point in time in our, in our little church that, that never actually uh, reached over 100, but we, we had 50% of our people out of work. 50% of our people were not working. How does that happen? I, I talked with, with church planter friends all across the nation uh, who had planted before and who have planted after, and they've never heard of that happening. 50% of your people are without work. Many struggled to pay their bills. A few even lost their homes. Many moved away. And I assure you, 
I assure you, there were many, many days it was tempting to give up. To just go, ah, forget it. This is too hard, God. But the only thing that kind of kept itching at my mind was, was this constant, like, I don't know, this constant feeling that God was saying to me, you know, just because your situation has changed does not mean my call has. What I've asked you to do is, is, is obey me and do what I, what I call you to do and, and don't worry about the details. I'm in control. God's purpose had never changed. God's purpose is never due. His purpose for us to imitate him and care for all creation, to worship him and to make disciples of all nations is still standing. And as a result, there are things that we were called to do from that. We're always called to keep him at the center of everything we do. Make sure that he's the, the focus of, of everything, not just the things like coming to church and, and, and telling our neighbors about Christ, but everything. Every silly little thing that we do. 17th century monk uh, named Brother Lawrence uh, called this practicing the presence of God. Remembering that he is with us in absolutely everything we do. And thus everything we do should be done for his glory. Whether we're running a race or singing a song, doing laundry or mowing the lawn, uh, building a home, teaching a child, sharing the gospel with our neighbors or what have you. Whatever it is, do it all for God's glory. Remembering that you're working for the Lord and not for yourself or not for men. It's for him. It's for God's glory. We're called to do all things as if we're working for God because his purpose for us remains firm. Just as his provision for us, his provision for mankind, continually endures. And once again, we look at the passage. Just as God did with Adam and Eve in the garden, so too after the flood, he promises that he will continue to provide for all humanity. Though there are some differences in the two provisions, right? Genesis 9, 3, and 4, he says, uh, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat, you shall not eat flesh with its life in it, that is, with its blood in it. Before the fall, before the fall, the diets of man and animal were strictly vegetarian. You got plants, knock yourself out. After the flood, God says, Everything is good for food. Except, except for that which still has its lifeblood in it. Now, I don't have a lot of time to unpack this as well as I wish I could. Because this is a sermon in and of itself. Uh, but, so I'm going to try to boil it down and give you a synopsis of why this is important. Why this, uh, don't eat the, the food with blood in it still. All right? And, and it's, it's oversimplified for you, uh, very theological types. So I realize that already. You don't need to tell me. Okay? <laughs> Um, here it goes. God equates blood to life, and life is extremely valuable to God, right? Blood is what gives us life, the blood pumping through our veins. If we don't have it, we don't have life. So for God is, is making this symbolic connection between blood and life, right? He specifically says that the life of those that are created in his image are, are extremely valuable. Very valuable. And he will later connect this to the, the sacrifices that are made for our sins in the temple, in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament. 
Blood sacrifices are made throughout the Old Testament, and there's a reason for that. There's that connection is I'm, you're giving up something of extreme value to pay for your sin, right? God wants his people to understand the value of life because he knows that one day his son is going to become one of them. And his son is going to shed his blood and lay down his life for them. He wants them to go into that knowing what is actually happening, the depth of that sacrifice that is being made that Christ died for us. He wants his people to take that with the full gravity that it comes with and recognize how valuable that means they are that God would lay down the the life of his son for them. God wants his people to know just how far he will go to provide for them, and not just for their physical needs, but for their spiritual needs, for, for the sin that distanced them from him. And he wants there to be no doubt that the provision endures despite the sin and selfishness of of his people, despite their failures and their faithlessness. God continues to provide for his people the the way a parent provides for their children, right? I mean, my parents were always very good about that in life. I I was not a, I don't think I was a terrible child. I, I mean, my mom's not here, so I can't ask her, but next time I see her, I'll ask her if she thought I was a terrible child or not and let you know. Um... I don't think I was a, a perfect child by any stretch of the means. I know, I know that I wasn't, but I wasn't terrible. I didn't give my parents too much trouble. I didn't cause too many problems or anything like that. But like all kids, particularly when I became a teenager, I had my moments. I had my difficulties. I am sure that I made them miserable at times because, well, sometimes that's what kids do. But I don't think it was ever over the top, there were just times that caused them a great deal of frustration and caused them to express their frustration in, 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 in vocal terms. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing, right? For example, the time that I suggested that, that my mom needed to relax a bit. Now, those are words you should never say to your parents, kids. Um, if, if, you're, if, you're, if your parents are talking to you or, or talking even in a loud voice, you should never say, you need to relax a bit or you need to calm down or just chill out. Those things are never going to get a good response from your parents. I'm just, this is just a, a little free advice for you all. Um, I, I said that to her after she scolded me for uh, bringing home a report card, which was less than stellar, shall we say. I wasn't the best student in high school, I'll admit. And so uh, less than stellar was easy for me to achieve, and my parents were always frustrated that you're not applying yourself. And, and so you know those things would come up time and time again in in, in conversations when my report card would come home or when my grades would come home. And um, so I said, Mom, just, just relax a bit. She didn't take my advice, uh, but, but she did take my keys to the car for a couple weeks. It was reasonable. It was fitting. I was disrespectful. I was dishonest. And, 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 and yet, and yet, even when I was being like that, even in the times when I maybe even caused my parents some heartache and some pain, They never stopped caring for me or clothing me or feeding me or housing me, despite my sin, because I knew that they loved me and they did love me deeply, just as God loves his people. Just as God loves his people. We never need to doubt his provision because he loves us and he is faithful to us and he keeps his promises and he knows what we are going through and knows what's in front of us and what's going to happen. We never need to doubt his provision. 
And we need to always remember that, that the covenant that he promises, the covenant that he makes, brings us peace. In the last 10 verses of the passage, God makes a covenant with Noah, right? He promises to never again destroy the earth by flood. And as a sign of this promise, God says in verses 13 through 17, he says, I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and earth. When I bring, cl- when I bring the clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I'll remember my covenant between me and you and every living creature. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of my covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, if this promise, if, if the promise were just what it is on face value, right? If it were only what it seems to be on the surface, this would be amazing, Considering our sin, considering the amount of trouble that human beings could get themselves into, the fact is, is that any time God says, I- I'm withholding my wrath, we should be going, wow! Because we deserve the wrath. So if, if this promise were only what it seems on the surface, that would be great. That would be reason for rejoicing and celebrating. But it's way more than that. It's way, way more than that. Now, as a kid, we're often taught that God placed his rainbow in the sky. And I even got a question this morning. Why doesn't this text say rainbow? Why does it say bow? Right? It's an understandable interpretation. It might even be a a correct interpretation considering the terminology of rainbow, right? Um, Because rainbows come after storms and this promise takes place after an amazing storm, a huge storm, right? Yet, here's the thing. Throughout Scripture, the actual word for rainbow occurs very, very rarely. Very rarely. The only two actual examples I could find in just a, in a cursory, kind of looking through it real quick, uh, were in Revelation. That's it. It just doesn't happen very often. It just doesn't take place. So what is God talking about here? Now, here it is. The word used for bow in this passage, every other time is referring, every other time that it's used in the Old Testament refers to a war weapon, a bow. Exactly what it says. Bow and arrow, big bow, right? There's implications to that. It has a lot of good implications for God's people. I want you to hear this. What God is saying, he's not just saying that there won't be any more floods. He's not just putting this pretty thing in the sky and saying, there won't be any more floods, so don't worry about it. Never again will I destroy the earth in that way. He is saying that, but that's not just what he's saying. It's not just setting aside his physical destruction of the earth, right? What he's doing is he's giving us another glimpse of the Redeemer, The Redeemer is in that rainbow. The the Redeemer is behind what's happening, what that rainbow is symbolizing. Bible scholar Meredith Klein writes this, "The uh, the recurring rainbow imposed on the retreating storm by the shining of the sun is God's battle bow laid aside as a token of grace, staying the lightning shafts of his wrath. In other words, God is putting 
down his war bow, his bow that he uses in his anger against sin. He is putting it down permanently and promising to never again use it against his creation. This doesn't mean that God's abandoned justice. It doesn't mean that suddenly God's just going to go, well, whatever happens, happens. Quite the opposite. God is, is still perfectly just. But now, here, in this moment, what he is saying is, my justice will no longer be pointed toward you. It won't. It won't. Tim Keller explains it this way. God laid aside his bow, pointing it skyward, as an indication that all judgment of sin would no longer be directed toward earth, but be directed toward heaven itself. That makes me, it just makes me giddy inside, I'm sorry, it just does. It's the full, it's the fullness of, of the hope that God demonstrated. The rainbow is, is that fullness. It, it, it demonstrates the whole thing, the whole picture. God is saying, I'll take the wrath for your sin upon myself. You don't have to do it anymore. You don't have to do it anymore. It isn't just a sign that God promised not to destroy the earth again. It's a promise to restore all of earth and its inhabitants to its former glory by taking the suffering consequences of sin upon himself through his son, Jesus Christ, who, as Jeremy said earlier, lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved to die and rose again that we could have peace. Peace in knowing that he will never, ever abandon us to our sin. This is it, guys. This is the hope to which we're called. This is the reason we should go, go out every morning and wake up every morning and saying, I'm hopeful because God is God and he is sovereign still and he is reigning and he has promised to never, ever take out his wrath for my sin upon me or anyone else like that. His people are saved from their sin. It's a hope that permeates every page of the Bible. It's mentioned or implied so frequently that I, I, I actually dare you to find a spot where it doesn't point to something hopeful that God has promised. God's word tells us that hope stems from, or the Bible tells us that hope stems from God's word itself. Uh, hope rests in Christ alone. Hope is set fully on God's grace. Hope lifts up our downcast spirits. Hope doesn't put us to any kind of shame. Hope gives us boldness. Hope gives us joy because it's the hope by which we are saved. It's our hope. There may be a lot of times in this world, and I guarantee you there have been in the past, and there probably will, unfortunately, in the future. There will be times when we get up and we turn on the news or we see the news and we go, <sighs> and our spirits will be downcast and beaten up and broken. But what God says to us is, look to me, look to my word. Your hope is here. Wait for a rainstorm and look to the sky after it's over and look for the hope that he's promised. Destruction will not come from him in that way again. And our souls will be saved despite our sin. Therefore, my friends, be encouraged in the hope that is yours. As the author of Hebrews wrote and charged all of us, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Will you pray with me?
Lord, it makes me, <clears throat> it makes me so excited and, and um, like I said, giddy like a kid, I guess, in some ways, to, to think about the hope that you've promised us, the hope that is ours through Christ, through our Savior, through the one who redeemed us from our sins. And Lord, yet I know that it is hard at times. It is so hard. My own spirit is downcast at times when I, when I just see all the terrible things that go on around us, Lord. Sometimes it's hard to keep our eyes focused on you and focused on the promise. Lord God, I pray that as we walk through all these things together, as your body, as friends, as family, I pray that you would use each one of us to be an encouragement to one another, to build one another up, to remind one another of the hope that we have in you, to remind one another of of the bow that that was laid down in the sky that reminds us of our hope. Lord, in all this, we pray that we would constantly be remembering to glorify and honor you. We would serve our neighbors well and love them well. And that in all this, we would imitate Christ and hopefully show them a little bit of your grace and your mercy and that they might see who you are and one day join with us in our worship and our glory and our honoring you. We thank you for this time, for this day, for this place, and for each person here. We pray your blessing upon them now in Christ's name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.